It's a cunning plan, sir. <laughs> Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. And today, once again, we are joined by Professor James Early of San Jacinto College. Welcome, James. Howdy. This week, we present another in our series examining in more depth some of the many stories of Texas in the Civil War. Today, we're talking about the Texas Overland Expedition, an effort by the Union forces to invade Texas and restore the Lone Star State to the Union. But first, what's your favorite historic Texas canon that's not the Come and Take It canon? That's, that's a gimme. Uh, well, I'm going to go with the big guns on the Battleship Texas, because I love the Battleship Texas. And uh, she's got ten of them. Ten big cannon. Hmm. They're they're they are pretty big. Um, I when I think cannons in Texas, and since I can't choose the come and take it cannon, um, the first one I think of is the cannon that used to get fired at the uh, Diamond Vision screen at the Astrodome at the old Astros games. Go Astros! Charge! Now I know there's. <laughs> I know there's going to be out there some like some sports fans of Texas colleges that are going to be like the cannon. There's always just it's a Texas thing. You have like a cannon in the end zone, but I'm skipping over that. I'm going to go to a historical one and I'm going to say a two cannon. I like the twin sisters. That was a really interesting episode about the history of those guns, um, particularly in light of having had to sit through, you know, Texas rising. So. <laughs> <laughs> so the real history is actually much more interesting all right well for my favorite canon i'm gonna go with the toy canon jimmy Wynn, who played for the houston astros that is, that is a great choice does that count that I, it very much counts let me let me sneak in a little funny story here this uh, this is not a historic canon but when i was a student at ut austin uh, we had a real problem on campus with grackles. They would have just thousands of grackles descend upon campus and land in the trees, and they pooped all over the place. I mean, you couldn't. It was like trying to go through an artillery barrage or something. You could not get to class, especially at night, without getting pooped on. And so they brought in these cannons that fired blanks, and they would fire the cannons at night, and that would make the grackles fly away. <laughs> so every night you're like, <laughs> and then you really felt like you were in a war zone. It was pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, of the 11 states that seceded from the United States in 1860 and 1861, there was perhaps none that President Abraham Lincoln wanted back in the Union more than Texas. Immediately after the people of Texas voted to leave the Union, Lincoln offered recently deposed Governor Sam Houston 50,000 federal troops to forcibly keep Texas in the U.S. Didn't we just talk about this recently? Hmm. Sounds yeah. familiar. Anyway, when Houston declined this offer, Lincoln realized that an invasion would be inevitable. In the fall of 1862, northern leaders began planning an effort to regain Texas. President Lincoln appointed Texas Unionist Andrew Jackson Hamilton as the military governor of Texas in name, if not in fact. Lincoln also tapped Major General Nathaniel Banks to lead an invasion of the Lone Star State. Banks was a politician from Massachusetts who gained command over other more qualified professional soldiers. Before Banks could plan the invasion, though, he was reassigned to head the Department of the Gulf, whose mission was to defend the recently captured New Orleans and increase Union control of the Mississippi. 
For the time being, a major invasion of Texas would have to wait. In the meantime, instead of an overland invasion, federal forces decided to try an amphibious assault. The attack, which occurred in September 1862, resulted in the capture of Sabine City, which is just across the Sabine River from Louisiana. This was the first major Texas town to be taken by Union forces. However, rumors of a large Confederate force heading towards the town prompted the Union commander to order a retreat only days after the city was taken. I guess his resolve wasn't very strong. As a result, the town and its surroundings quickly reverted to Confederate control. The next month, federal forces assaulted the key port of Galveston. This effort, though technically successful, resulted in little more than nominal Union control over the island. The existence of this new Union beachhead proved to be short-lived because on January 1, 1863, Confederate naval and land forces expelled the Bluecoats. The following September, a second attack attempting to force its way up through the Sabine Pass ended in utter ended in utter failure for the Union. Fifty men under Captain Dick Dowling, a Houston saloon keeper, manning a mud fort with six cannon, sank two Union gunboats, disabled two transports, and killed, wounded, and captured 200 men. After two and a half years, the Union controlled no more Texan territory than it had when Texas first seceded. By the summer of 1863, the Union capture of Vicksburg made the Mississippi River secure, and most of Louisiana was safely in Union hands. General Banks was now ready to launch a land invasion of the Lone Star State. He assembled an army of 30,000 bluecoats, the largest Union force that would operate in the Trans-Mississippi Theater throughout the war. Included in Banks' force was a regiment of Unionist Texas cavalry, commanded by Colonel E.J. Davis, who would later go on to serve as governor of Texas, during Reconstruction. Banks's plan was to move his army westward from New Orleans to Brashear City, now Morgan City, and march up Bayou Teche. Then he would have two options. He could continue northward up the Red River, turn west at Shreveport, and enter northeast Texas. Or, alternatively, he could abandon the Red River, head due west, and enter Texas near its coast. Banks's army would be opposed by Confederate General Richard Taylor and a small force of about 8,400 men, most of whom were relatively green Texas infantry. Taylor's army also included 2,000 Texas cavalrymen under the command of Brigadier General Thomas Green, who we previously met in the episode on the New Mexico campaign, where he filled in for the drunken Confederate General Sibley. A veteran of the Battle of San Jacinto, Green had also fought Indians on the Texas frontier and fought in Mexico under General Zachary Taylor. Green's tough cavalrymen were determined to prevent the Federals from entering Texas at all costs. On September 13, 1863, Banks began ferrying his men across the Mississippi. Once they were across the river, the men, who were led now by General William Franklin, since Banks stayed in New York City, boarded train cars. They made the 80-mile journey to Brashear City on these trains. From there, they continued along Bayou Teche towards Vermilionville, which is present-day Lafayette. Mike, you're familiar with that town of Lafayette. Been there once or twice. Yeah. Uh, now, this is where the Union brass would have to decide on a northern or western route. Along the way, arguments, name-calling, and even occasional fistfights broke out between the eastern and western federal troops. I guess there was uh, conflict between the boys from the out east up in, up in New York and New Jersey and the, the, the Missouri and uh, Illinois boys. Mm-hmm. Well, the inner army conflict increased with each passing day. You would think they weren't fighting a civil war already. 
They grew so bad that one Union soldier wrote, I think either side would rather shoot at each other than at the Johnnies. So Johnny Rebs, for those of you who don't know. The Bluecoats, now joined by General Banks, reached Vermilionville on October 9th. There they met Confederate resistance, including Tom Green's cavalry, which E.J. Davis and his cavalry regiment put to flight. Having chased away the town's small garrison, Banks occupied the town, handed over command to Franklin, and returned to New Orleans. While there, Banks began contemplating a two-pronged assault on Texas. Franklin would take the main army due west, following the more southerly route of the two, which he had previously considered. At the same time, Banks would lead an amphibious assault on Brownsville. This one-two punch, Banks believed, would be unstoppable. For this scheme to work, however, Banks would need to tell Franklin and the other officers in Vermilionville about it, which, for some reason, he didn't. Franklin and his army slowly and cautiously marched toward Texas. Along the way, they were constantly harassed by Tom Green's Texas cavalrymen. After five days, Green's force made a stand, daring the bluecoats to try and brush them aside. As the Federals advanced, the Confederates let loose an artillery barrage, which Union artillerymen answered in kind. Then a band of Texas cavalrymen came crashing out of the trees, firing and yelling as they charged the Union right. The Federals fled from this charge, but E.J. Davis and his horsemen halted it with a countercharge of their own. This engagement, later named the Battle of Buzzard's Prairie, resulted in a stalemate that was only broken when a large body of Union reinforcements arrived and forced the rebels to withdraw. Now augmented, the Union Army continued its march towards Texas. As they marched on, the Bluecoats engaged in heavy foraging and destruction of southern property. One Texas cavalryman described the scene thus, quote, The enemy has completely devastated the country, burned all the fences, corn, and cotton houses, destroyed all corn near his line of march, and many women and children within his lines are now said to be almost in a starving condition. He continued urging on, quote, Let the people of Texas prepare to meet such a foe, and with us to assist, he shall never trample down our homes and completely devastate our country as they have this. Franklin's army marched on, reaching the village of Opelousas, Bear's Landing, which is present-day Port Bear, and then Washington. There Franklin halted, not knowing what to do next. Did Banks want Franklin to march west towards the Sabine, into Texas, or north towards Shreveport? The only orders Banks sent Franklin were to hold your position in that quarter and ascertain as much concerning the country on your front and on your flanks as possible, and to keep these headquarters well informed of what may transpire with such suggestions as may occur to you. Now, a more aggressive commander than the supercautious Franklin might have interpreted these orders as a license to press on, but Franklin did not. Instead, he stayed put and repeatedly wired Banks for clarification, which he didn't receive. I love these, I love these 19th century orders from generals. <laughs> go vaguely this direction and, yeah. If you feel up to it, go for it. <laughs> Just do whatever you want. It's like, you know? it's this, it's yeah. like this, this holdover of a courtly language that, that just doesn't really work in times of war. Yeah. Hmm. Well, there's also the factor that, uh, given our modern perspective they had very little uh, means of communicating with each other once they were separated so right. they were more or less left to their own devices anyway now rapidly dwindling supplies and constant harassment by green's cavalry prompted franklin to wire banks and ask for permission to move his army back to new iberia which was closer to the union headquarters in new orleans and further from the main body of confederate forces 
Franklin was surprised to receive a response, saying that Banks was no longer in New Orleans. He had taken several thousand bluecoats on a naval expedition, hoping to land near the Rio Grande. Furthermore, Banks left orders for Franklin to send several regiments to New Orleans to serve as reinforcements for Banks. Franklin decided to go ahead and pull back to New Iberia. There, his forces could resupply themselves and prepare to restart the march toward Texas. Maybe. When Franklin's army began its withdrawal toward New Iberia, it had been reduced from its initial size of 37,000 to around 24,000. Several thousand soldiers were detached to join Banks's expedition. That's the one that's heading toward the Rio Grande. While others on the fringes were captured by Confederate cavalry. Still others guarded supply lines and many were ill or otherwise no longer fit for duty. Despite this reduction in size, Franklin's army was still three times the size of all the Confederate forces combined. In the area, that is, of course. At the end of the first day's march, Franklin ordered a part of the army to camp across a river from the main body where they would serve as a rear guard against a possible Confederate attack. An attack did indeed come the next morning. Green ordered his cavalry to make two hit-and-run assaults. After these assaults, the two sides exchanged artillery fire for the rest of the day, accomplishing little. That evening, Green ordered three Texas infantry regiments to come south and reinforce him. The regiments were commanded by a Texas attorney and Confederate colonel named Oren Roberts. Oren had served as chairman of the Texas Secession Convention and would later become governor of the state. He hastily marched south and arrived at Green's camp early in the morning. Green was also joined by two artillery units, bringing his total force to around 3,000 men. Most of the troops were green, but highly self-confident and ready for action, as are all strapping young Texas men. <laughs> now, at around noon the next day, the full Confederate force marched towards the Union lines. The charging, screaming rebels caught their enemy by surprise, but the bluecoats soon regrouped and unleashed a withering fire, wounding many, including a Texas infantry captain named Richard Koch, who is... You guessed it, another future Texas governor. Now, despite this, the fierce advance of the Texans caused first one, then another bluecoat regiment, to break and run. As the remaining federal soldiers tried to hold off the attacking infantry, the Confederate cavalry made, in the words of historian Richard Lowe, quote, one of those wild mad dashes that cavalrymen love so well, whooping and hollering and waving their sabers. The rebels drove back the Union force, capturing an entire regiment in the process. The fierceness of the Confederate attack was summarized by one Union soldier who later wrote, quote, These Texans are very bloodthirsty in the heat of battle. That's an understatement. <laughs> As yep, are buddy. all young, strapping young... Oh, sorry. <laughs> bloodthirsty, yep. Now, before long, the entire Union army was fleeing for its life. Most of the victorious Confederates, rather than giving chase, stopped to plunder the well-stocked Union camp. Over the next few hours, a few skirmishes occurred, but by the end of the day, General Green decided enough was enough and pulled all the Confederates back to Opelousas. What would later be called the Battle of Bayou Bourbeau was now over. At Bayou Bourbeau, the Confederates suffered 179 casualties with 22 killed. The Union number, <clears throat> the Union killed and wounded matched the rebels, but nearly 600 were captured. This means that the Confederates had only 6% of their force counted as casualties, while the Federals lost 40%. The day after the fighting ended, the two sides called a truce, exchanging a few prisoners and burying their dead. There was even a two-hour-long picnic lunch in which officers of the two sides dined together. 
Both sides treated their prisoners kindly, showing that for most soldiers on both sides, the brutal fighting they previously carried out was done more from duty and patriotism than hatred for the enemy. You have to love that about the Civil War. Okay, we're killing each other during the day, and then, hey, you want to come over for dinner tonight? <laughs> yeah, by 1865, that was gone. Yeah, that was. That's true. We're not there yet. I could just... The You're Union only commander, halfway through the war, yeah. I can hear the Union commander saying, hey, it's not personal, it's business. Yeah. No. All right, sorry, moving on. The next day, the demoralized Federals continued their march back to New Iberia, all the while grumbling about the incompetence of their commander and being harassed by Confederate cavalry. They arrived in New Iberia on November 17th, where they took up a strongly fortified position. With winter about to set in, the overland expedition came to an end. Once again, the Union Army was denied entrance to the Lone Star State. The Texan troops' stubborn defense would serve, in one Confederate soldier's words, as, quote, a warning to the enemy as to what he might expect to suffer should he ever dare to meet the sons of Texas upon their own soil, end of quote. As Richard Lowe summarizes, General Banks's refusal to give Franklin specific instructions about the move toward Texas, Franklin's own timidity, both generals' lack of imaginative solutions to the supply problem, and the stinging defeat on the Borbo all spelled failure for the Texas Overland Campaign. It's an interesting historical oddity that no fewer than six Texas governors fought in this campaign. Edward Clark, who became governor after the Texas legislature deposed Sam Houston in 1861, and then only served a few months, was colonel of the 14th Texas Infantry. In addition to Clark, another governor, Reconstruction-era Republican, E.J. Davis, commander of the 1st Texas U.S. Cavalry, fought on the Union side. And then on the Confederate side, four subsequent post-Reconstruction Democratic governors, Richard Koch, a captain in the 15th Texas Infantry, Colonel Richard Hubbard of the 22nd Texas Infantry, Colonel Oren Roberts, commander of all Confederate infantry at Bayou Bourbeau, and Captain Joseph Sayers of the famed Valverde Battery, an artillery unit that fought throughout the campaign. Now, regardless of the pedigree of the men on both sides, the close-fought nature of the Battle of Bayou Bourbeau would obscure the overall shortcomings of the leadership of Banks and his subordinates. Despite the campaign's failure, there was still a belief that a harder push would succeed, and this led to the Union having another go at invasion the next year in what would become known as the Red River Campaign. This campaign would prove to be an even worse fiasco than the Overland Campaign, and would keep Union forces from gaining control of Texas until 1865. But that's a story for another day. Well, that's a great story. And I gotta say, like, at the very end there, it feels very much like an episode of Blackadder Goes Forth. <laughs> <laughs> the pointless the pointless dumbness of, of World War One trench warfare. We're going to go over the top, boys, because that is exactly what they'd expect us to do, which they are not expecting us to do. We're going to march into that bayou full of 10,000 angry Texans and tell them we're taking them back to the Union. Yeah. <laughs> it's a cunning plan, sir. Uh, so speaking of cunning plans, I like the idea that Banks said, I'm going to do a two-pronged invasion of Texas. One prong is going to go over the Sabine, go either up the Red River or over the Sabine. The other one's going to Brownsville. Which is 600 miles away. <laughs> I mean, and, you and, know, you look, I'm not, and I'm not even going to tell my next subordinate commander what yeah. the hell I'm doing. It's like, <laughs> surprise. Yeah. He'll figure it he, out. He sends him, you know, Franklin sends a, a telegraph. What do I do? 
Oh, he's gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. You got you've got Lee in Virginia sending Jackson 60 miles away to do one thing and he's doing another thing. Like, and that's a two-prong attack. Like, that's understandable. Yeah. This is like no, this is a campaign. <laughs> there seems to be a uh, fundamental misunderstanding of uh, Texas geography <laughs> in that. that Scott, exactly. Because I'm like thinking, if you take Texas and you put it over Europe, it you know it's, it it's blots out the sun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah or, or, or let's just say that it would be like, even to put it in states terms, it'd be like, okay, we're gonna, I'm going to send you, Scott. I'm going to give you a couple thousand men, and I want you to retake... Uh, Tennessee, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Mississippi, and Arkansas. Yeah, with a two-prong attack. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's well. We're gonna cover ten thousand square miles. Yeah, Banks was a politician. He was not a. This <laughs> is not a very good general. Uh, he, was he was rubbish, man. He was, he was just rubbish. All, everything he did was a disaster. Yeah. Um. So that's that's the one thing that that stood out to me. The other thing is, like I said earlier, this courtly language of. Yeah, I just picture. I remember back on that episode, on that uh, movie, the the movie about Gettysburg, where Martin Sheen played Robert E. Lee, and you know it's a famous episode where he, in the Battle of Gettysburg, he said he gave orders to a subordinate that if it is all practicable, take that hill, and it's like, tell him to take the damn hill. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know don't be a gentleman. Tell him to take the hill. And I, Scott, you make up a good point that once you're out, once they are out of you know, out of earshot of each other, it's difficult to get communication. But like, I just think it's like it's it's it must be something that's lost in the translation of language of t- and and time that, like, it was just necessary to give everyone a bit of an out that you know you you have some in- level of independence to do things, but like, yeah, invade well, the state. <laughs> yeah, and I I just think you know anything more specific, you know, like you said, it's one thing if you're like sixty miles away. Um, yeah. You know, even that close, it's it's a little easier to manage and be specific. You ha- might have a little more intelligence of what's happening that close. But when you're talking about covering the distances that they are here, they only have a vague idea of what's going on yeah. in that part of the state. So general orders that are kind of vague and like, you know, if this seems like it'll make sense, do it. Otherwise, you know, figure something else out, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, like like I said in, in the like it says in the script, if you have an aggressive commander, you know, a like a, a William T. Sherman, you know, or even a even a uh, or a Jackson, yeah, yeah a Jackson, uh, a Robert E. Lee. I mean, I mean, not that Robert E. Lee was given orders, but he he gave them. He didn't take them. But anyway, if you had somebody who had initiative and knew how to fight, they would interpret that order as, oh, I can attack if I feel like it. And, and yeah. I've got three times as many guys as the other side, so I'm going to do it. But Franklin was a, another one of these ones that was not very good. And he uh, he just, well, what, would Phil what do Sheridan, I do? Yeah, what would Phil Sheridan have done with that order? He would have taken Austin. Like, he would have been in yeah. Austin by the, time, by the time Banks got around to getting to getting to yeah. getting anywhere. Exactly. He wouldn't have messed around, but Franklin was just wanting. Or even a George really, Custer. Yeah. Or even a George yeah. Custer, somebody who's foolhardy, who may, but still would have, would have acted. Franklin was wanting a, a specific order to, yes, go on and march into Texas, but he wasn't going to get it from Banks. Yeah. And I think this illustrates the character of the Civil War is that, is that there was a, there was a class of professional officers, uh, that were West Point graduates who were who were earmarked for, you know, 
the the small army of the United States, but they were they were earmarked for success. And in, in like West Point was the finest technical school in the United States at the time. So like these men that that ended up being the generals of the Civil War all all went to West Point or largely went to West Point. But then there was because of the scale of the conflict, it was not something that the small armies, you know, you take the small army and divide it into two, that those two cannot fight the this scale of this war and so the both sides had to rapidly ramp up their 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 armies and so in in both sides there were political generals there were political officers so mm-hmm. they raised companies they raised men or they were former governors or they were senators or congressmen they had political cachet and they were able to translate that into into high ranking positions within the military and that wasn't always to the best benefit of of the soldiers or of the the effort. In in many ways, it a lot of ways prolonged the war. Um, so well, Lenton, so I'll put it to you and James and Scott. Uh, not to wander too much, but I you know I love when we do these things to do the Harry Turtle Dove thing, and just say you know, let's. And I think we asked this before, like what if Sam Houston had said, okay, send fifty thousand troops, but what if somehow. They hadn't just gotten skunked at the border and had this poor planning. What if somehow they'd had some success bringing a campaign into Texas? Because there's really not a large number of battles fought during the Civil War in Texas. It's a tough thought because they may have fallen into the you know the iron law of logistics. They were they were moving the further away they moved from the, their base of supply, the more difficult it's going to be. Um, so, and you know the thing about it is is that. Texas had a smaller population. Uh, they sent ninety thousand men into the you know ninety thousand men served in the Civil War. They sent about twenty to thirty thousand to the east. Um, but there was there was still a lot of Texans that had to stay in Texas just to defend against the Indians. So they they probably there there would have been there would have been battles in inside of Texas, and it would probably have gotten a lot more ugly than it did. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say if the Union had really made Texas a priority, I know I said that Lincoln really wanted Texas back, but but that wasn't really backed up with a serious effort. Texas was, again, something that, yeah, we'd love to have it, but we just don't have enough guys. We don't have enough commanders. That whole theater was really uh, on the back burner for the Union for the entire war. I mean, you think about it. You've got Robert E. Lee running around not far from Washington, invades the North twice, and you've got Jeb Stewart with his cavalry running around in the North. So, I mean, they had to really focus the majority, the overwhelming majority of their efforts on the war in Virginia. And And then, of course, second second in priority was getting the Mississippi, the entire Mississippi, and then moving down Tennessee and all. So Texas was kind of a sideshow, and that's why I really feel like they sloughed off guys like Banks and Franklin. Uh, they weren't going to send. Oh, first of all, it was hard enough to find a good Union commander. I mean, we all know our Civil War history that uh, they, they took Lincoln forever to finally realize. You know, I better get Grant over here in the East. But um, they they certainly weren't going to send anybody that was a top notch general over to Texas when you needed somebody that could beat Robert E. Lee. Yeah, I think the time the time to to have done it really. Mike, to your point, was that that initial fifty thousand men in eighteen sixty one? Yeah, because that's that would have been really the time to do it. Um, 
by by this by the fall of 1863, they've already closed off the Mississippi. They've already captured Vicksburg. Right. And so in in many ways, the capture of Vicksburg in many ways sort of neuter neutralized Texas, right? Because Texas was a was a was a very long coastline, um, not a lot of ports, but a long coastline. And so a lot of blockade runners were utilizing the Texas coast because it was the furthest away from the Union ports uh, to maintain the blockades. And then there's that entire big long river border with Mexico. And so as we talked about before, the flow of cotton and of goods and back and forth between Texas and Mexico was just nonstop. Mm-hmm. Um, because Mexico was ruled by the French at the time. Um, and so the the that was the reason, one of the reasons why they did take Brownsville was to at least kind of cut some of that off. Um, but that the the flow, you know, to, from Texas all the way to Virginia ceased to exist once the Mississippi's closed off. So yes. Texas Texas had a lot of surplus at the end of the war because they had cotton just sitting on the sitting on the sitting there waiting to be yeah. shipped out anywhere. And they had goods from Mexico, but they just didn't have anywhere to send it. So I think that's the, the – you make a good point is that if Houston really had said, give me the 50000 that that might have been enough to, 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 to do. Or it might have just bogged Texas down into a really ugly, ugly civil war in 1861. Yeah, I, I think that's what would have happened. I, I mean, Sam Houston, let's face it, 1861, Sam Houston was very uh, you know, tired and was very ill. He dies in 1863. And I think had he accepted that command and had those soldiers been brought over, if they could have gotten past the Texan defenders, which the Union always had a hard time doing. But if they had done that, I mean, Houston would have had to have appointed some kind of second in command. I think he would have been a figurehead, uh, kind of like Washington, George Washington was during the Whiskey Rebellion. And so the question is, is who's he going to pick or are they going to send down some you know, goofball like Banks or Benjamin Butler or somebody like that? I think if he would have, let's say, appointed E.J. Davis, I, I mean, I mean, E.J. Davis was obviously a very talented uh, military commander, but he was a nobody in 1861. He was just a local judge, and uh, and the Union didn't really realize his ability at that point. It would have taken several years for him to rise up through the ranks. So, again, if, if Houston had accepted, who would they have really made the field commander? And that yeah. would have made all the difference. And but even if they'd had a good exactly. one, let's say they'd put just I'll pick a name. Let's say they put Grant down there. Uh, Grant would have obviously been effective, but as y'all said, the, there were plenty of Texans there, and I think a lot of the Texans that ended up leaving and going to other parts of the Confederacy, uh, they would have stayed behind, and you would have had a lot of ugly, ugly Texan versus Texan fighting. Yeah, it would have looked yeah, a I lot think- like Missouri did, and it would looked a lot like Texas yes. did after the war. In a lot mm-hmm. of ways, I think that's really the the salient point is you would have had a lot of bushwhacking, a lot of murdering, a lot of neighbors, fi- neighbors shooting neighbors. Yep. Yeah. Well, I think that that's, you know, it's kind of a hindsight 2020 thing. And but again, it's it's one of these crazy stories, um, let alone pieces of, of I and because I, I feel like when we have talked about. The first time we talked about Civil War, we were just like, you know, Texas contributed a lot of manpower, contributed a lot of this, but not a lot happened. But then it's it's been interesting to sort of see the little things that did happen are a real window that affect Texas politics for decades. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and here's the thing, is that other than 
a, a one small invasion into Sabine City and then another attempt and then grabbing Galveston for a few weeks. Yeah, temporarily. And then, and then grabbing Brownsville. So far, what we've talked about, there hasn't been any fighting in Texas. There's no battles in Texas. The battles have occurred in Louisiana and in our previous episode in New Mexico and Arizona. Right. So, so the so the destruction that you saw that you see in Louisiana and Mississippi and and in Virginia and in Tennessee and in Arkansas and in Missouri, you don't see that in Texas. You know, you don't see the you don't see the you know, the, the description of the burned the burned farms in the in the wake of the Union advance. That's Louisiana. That's not Texas. Right. And so Texas escaped a great deal of that in the course of the war. And I think, like you said, Mike, it affected Texas politics and it affected at the end of the war. Texas was unbeaten and unbowed in a lot of ways. And so so when when they're dividing sides between people that were in favor of the union, the people that are in favor of going back to the union, even though they may have been fought, fought in the Confederacy and those irredentist Confederates, they're gonna. St- the bloodshed started in 1865 in Texas. Mm-hmm. I got to give a shout out too to E.J. Davis. Uh, how about how about Davis? If he, you know, he played a big role in this battle, and had he not been there, had he not done what he did, it might have been a total Union disaster. I mean, the yeah. Confederates were pushing them back, jump, you know, coming crashing out of the trees and. Scaring the crud out of the Union. The Union were turning tail and running. Uh, and uh, Davis, at least twice we saw, rallied the troops and fought back and saved the Union troops from total disaster. I think Davis is underappreciated. I really do, too. I'm looking forward to our discussion on him. Uh, it's it, it's interesting, too, how this battle was like a Texas governor's convention. <laughs> it's like a, a training training ground for future Texas governors. I couldn't believe how many were actually in uh, this battle uh, when, when I first read about it. Well, it's a it's crazy story. This is a great story you brought us today, James. We appreciate uh, all the hard work you put into this one. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd like to thank Professor James Early for joining us in this fascinating discussion. We're going to have James back on some future episodes to continue talking with us about Texas and the Civil War. You can find Professor Early regularly posting on the American History Fanatics Facebook group, which is a lively place for discussion and debate of all things history. We'd love to hear from you, so help us out. Like the show, share us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. I'm Scotticus. If you love this show, and you know you do, then help us out, tell your friends, and go leave a review on iTunes today. It really helps us out to find more listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast, where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.